0: This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash free books to download this book in PDF format. By This Standard, The Authority of God's Law Today by Greg L. Bonson Published by the Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Copyright 1985. This book is affectionately dedicated to my parents, Robert and Virginia Bonson who first taught me respect for the law. Prologue by Gary North The book which you have before you is kind of a lawyer's brief. It is tightly reasoned, yet clear. It covers the basic outline of the New Testament's case for the continuing validity of Old Testament law. Argument by argument, Dr. Bonson refutes the supposed biblical arguments against the continuing validity of the law of God, That there is today an unrecognized crying need for a book such as this one testifies to the theological deprivation that the Church of Jesus Christ has suffered for almost two millennia since the death of her founder. Nevertheless, that such a book should now appear at what seems to be the final crisis of the humanist era of Western civilization indicates that the timing is near perfect. The thinking of at least a minority of American church leaders has begun to shift there is a market for this book, in my entrepreneurial view, which did not exist two decades ago. Indeed, this market barely existed as recently as five years ago. Fundamental changes in perspective have taken place within the American Christian community and are now accelerating, changes that Christian news media recognize even less clearly than the secular press does. There are numerous reasons for this shift in perspective. In the United States, the most important historical incident in this shift was the decision of the United States Supreme Court to strike down state laws against abortion, the infamous Roe v. Wade decision in 1973. That decision made philosophy a life and death issue. It brought to the forefront the inescapable reality of a philosophical position that Dr. Bonson and other defenders of biblical law have long argued, namely that there is no such thing as neutrality. The issue of abortion has graphically illustrated the truth of this conclusion. Either the unborn child is left alone to mature in the womb, or else it is executed, in this case, by a state-licensed medical professional. It is illegal at present to commit an abortion for a fee, unless you are a licensed physician. To do so would involve practicing medicine without a license, and the Supreme Court would uphold your being sent to jail for such a crime against humanity, quote, humanity, end quote, being defined as exceedingly profitable medical monopoly. There is no third possibility, no neutral zone between life and death, except for the rare case of an aborted child who somehow survives the executioner in initially and is born alive in the abortionist's office. This medical possibility has created havoc for humanism's legal theorists. It has been called by one medical authority, quote, the ultimate complication, end quote. Once out of the womb, must the abortionist regard the baby as a legal person, or can he legally destroy it? A legal dilemma such as this one can only arise in a civilization which has turned its back on God and His law. Humanist lawyers need humanistic principles of casuistry, the application of permanent general laws to concrete cases, in order to deal with such dilemmas, just as surely as Christian legal thinkers need biblical principles of casuistry. Yet Christian casuistry... Has been ridiculed by secular historians. We should not forget it is never a question of casuistry versus no casuistry, it is always a question of what kind of casuistry. Biblical Law and Evangelism. As Christians rediscover that at one time in American history this was a Christian nation and Western civilization was once Christian civilization, the question then arises. What makes a Christian society appear visibly different from any other kind of society? The answer today is exactly what it was in Moses' day. Ethics. In Moses' day, as today, ethical systems were at war with each other, and a God-given and man-enforced ethical system was required as a form of international evangelism. As we read in Deuteronomy 4, Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that ye should do so in the land whither ye go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes, and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great, who hath God so nigh unto them, as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for. And what nation is so great, that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law, which I set before you this day? Deuteronomy 4, verses 5-7. God is glorified when his law is enforced by those who honor him. Similarly, God is outraged when men turn their backs on his law, for in doing so they turn their backs on the social and legal restraints that alone keep man from destroying himself and the creation. Someone has called God's law a user manual for the creation, but it is more than this. It is a user's manual for life. God's laws when imparted to men redeemed by grace through faith in Christ are the laws of life. Faith without works is dead. James chapter 2 verse 20. Christians without faithful works are equally dead, and therefore unfaithful. The question is, how do we test the faithfulness of any man's works or any civilization's works? In short, by what standard? Apologetics Dr. Bonson studied apologetics, the philosophical defense of the faith, and theology under Dr. Cornelius Van Til, the eloquent defender of the absolute sovereignty of God and the absolute sovereignty of the Bible. No Christian philosopher in the history of the Church has ever attacked the myth of neutrality more confidently or more effectively than Dr. Van Til. When R.J. Rushdooney wrote a book on Van Til's thought, he titled it, By What Standard? This was appropriate, for it has been Van Til more than anyone in Church history who has thrown down the challenge to self-proclaimed autonomous man to defend his standards apart from God. While Van Til has to continue to defend the Bible in terms of the Bible, there is no philosophical strategy that can work, and there is no strategy that has ever worked, except this one: to challenge the lost in terms of the revelation of God in His Bible. The autonomous emperor has no clothes. Covenant breakers have no internally self-consistent philosophical response. By what standard can man know anything truly? By the Bible and only the Bible, Van Til answered, in volume after Uridate volume. God is glorified when his law is enforced by those who honor him. Similarly, God is outraged when men turn their backs on his law, for in doing so they turn their backs on the social and legal restraints that alone keep man from destroying himself and the creation. Someone has called God's law a user manual for the creation, but it is more than this. It is a user's manual for life. God's laws when imparted to men redeemed by grace through faith in Christ are the laws of life. Faith without works is dead. James chapter 2 verse 20. Christians without faithful works are equally dead and therefore unfaithful. The question is, how do we test the faithfulness of any man's works or any civilization's works? In short, by what standard? Apologetics Dr. Bonson studied apologetics, the philosophical defense of the faith, and theology under Dr. Cornelius Van Til, the eloquent defender of the absolute sovereignty of God and the absolute sovereignty of the Bible. No Christian philosopher in the history of the Church has ever attacked the myth of neutrality more confidently or more effectively than Dr. Van Til. When R.J. Rushdooney wrote a book on Van Til's thought, he titled it, By What Standard?, This was appropriate, for it has been Van Til more than anyone in church history who has thrown down the challenge to self-proclaimed autonomous man to defend his standards apart from God, while Van Til has to continue to defend the Bible in terms of the Bible. There is no philosophical strategy that can work, and there is no strategy that has ever worked, except this one, to challenge the lost in terms of the revelation of God in his Bible. The autonomous emperor has no clothes. Covenant breakers have no internally self-consistent philosophical response. By what standard can man know anything truly? By the Bible, and only the Bible, Van Til answered, in volume after erudite volume. Dr. Bonson is certainly a spiritual and intellectual heir of Van Til, as Van Til recognized early in Dr. Bonson's seminary career. Dr. Bonson is a trained philosopher and a rigorous logician. Indeed, he writes more precisely than Van Til. There is a price to pay for this precision, however, both for the author and his readers. The author suffers from a narrower market, and readers must think precisely in order to follow the arguments. Not that many readers are sufficiently self-disciplined to take up the challenge. It is not that Dr. Bonson's exposition is difficult to follow. It is that one must pay attention in order to follow him. This requires previewing and reviewing. It also requires readers to remember the outline of the arguments that have been presented in earlier sections. Read and reread pages thirty forty five through forty seven. Dr. Bonson requires of his readers the ability and willingness to pay attention, not a high IQ. His glossary provides definitions for technical terms. Use it. His performance in this book is admittedly unexciting. He considers the standard arguments that have been used against the idea of the continuing validity of biblical law, and he exposes them, one by one, as illogical, anti-biblical, and productive of great harm. He shows not only that these arguments are wrong logically, but also that they are wrong morally. He wraps his opponents in an exegetical net. The more they struggle, the more ensnared they become. He never names them, but you can hear them screaming anyway. His performance could also be compared to a man who milks a poisonous snake. He operates methodically, without visible emotion, and precisely. Eventually, the snake is rendered harmless, temporarily, until the poison is again manufactured by its system. Then it's another round of milking, with yet another argument being squeezed dry of logical and biblical content until the snake is exhausted. On and on it goes until the snake finally dies or has its fangs extracted. To appreciate the technician's efforts, however, the observer must recognize the danger of the poison and the seriousness of the operation. The observer should also not be surprised that from the start to finish, there is a lot of outraged hissing going on. What is notable about Dr. Bonson's previous writings on biblical law has been the dearth of published criticism. Theonomy and Christian Ethics appeared in 1977, and it received considerable verbal criticism. Murmurings might better describe the response. But there is not much published criticism, and what there was cannot be described as a serious threat to Dr. Bonson's case. A few critical essays appeared, but only one was of any academic significance. Dr. Meredith Klein's and Dr. Bonson's subsequent response ended the debate. Whenever I reread the two essays, I am reminded of that five second underground cartoon Bambi meets Godzilla. Bambi is skipping through the forest when a giant reptilian foot squashes him. End of cartoon. In the case of Dr. Klein, end of the debate. There was no rematch. The most amusing aspect of this historic confrontation is that Bambi initiated it. Bullies and Weaklings This book's introduction to the question of the continuing validity of Old Testament law is not definitive. It is only an introduction. It should not be regarded as a final statement of the theonomic position. Theonomy in Christian ethics is an extended defense of the case which is presented in this book. Rush Dooney's Institutes of Biblical Law, James Jordan's Law of the Covenant, and my own economic commentary on the Bible, The Dominion Covenant, are also examples of how biblical law can be successfully applied to contemporary social issues and policy making. There are those in the Christian community who will immediately reject Dr. Bonson's thesis, but their voices are growing increasingly shrill because of their desperation. They are under siege, from Bonson on their right and from secular humanism on their left. Their numbers are thinning even more rapidly than their hair. A younger generation of Christian activists is in no mood to take seriously lame traditional excuses for not challenging humanist civilization in the name of biblical principles. These younger men are tired of being pushed around by God-haters. More significantly, they have begun to recognize that the church is not culturally impotent and God's law does not lead to impotence. Unlike the comic book advertisement for Charles Atlas's Dynamic Tension program, where the 200-pound bully kicks sand in the face of the 98-pound weakling, Christians in the 20th century have been the 200-pound weaklings who have been pushed around by 98-pound bullies. Like Samson without his hair, Christians without God's law are impotent and have been regarded by Philistines throughout the ages as drudges to be misused and humiliated publicly if the opportunity presents itself. What Dr. Bonson is proposing is that we flex our muscles and knock the pillars out from under humanism's temple. But this time we should push from the outside of the arena, not pull from the inside. When it comes to social collapse, let the Philistines of our day be inside. Let us pick up the pieces. The much-abused traditional slogan, We're under grace, not law, is increasingly recognized by intelligent Christians as an ill-informed and even perverse theological defense of a perverse cultural situation. Quote, We're under a God-hating humanist legal structure, not God's law, and there's nothing we can do about it. But there is something Christians can do about it. They can start studying, preaching, and rallying behind biblical law. It is unlikely that antinomian critics of biblical law can be successful much longer in withstanding the pressures of our era. A growing minority of Christian leaders now recognize that they must come up with valid social alternatives to a collapsing humanist civilization, a humanist order which they now seek to embarrass and even destroy, if possible, if they are to escape the fate of those who now live under the self-declared sovereignty of self-proclaimed autonomous man. The Bus Will Crash Unless There is an old political maxim that says, You can't fight something with nothing. The wisdom of this maxim has been demonstrated for over half a century. Christians have been impotent to stop the drift into social disintegration. Now at last they are feeling the cultural pressure. Their children are at last being visibly assaulted by the perversions of this age. Their churches are now being threatened by some federal bureaucracy. They are now becoming aware of the fact that they can no longer remain as silent participants in the back of humanism's bus unless they are willing to go over the cliff. They are slowly beginning to understand that they can't get off this speeding bus, although a theology of backdoor escape has been popular until quite recently. But rapture fever is steadily cooling. So there is now only one alternative. They must persuade the other passengers to allow them to take over at the wheel. Christians alone possess a valid road map, the law of God. This map is rejected by the present driver, and if the other passengers including confused and psychologically defeated Christians, continue to assent to this driver, then the bus will crash. It may even explode. The humanist free ride at the wheel is coming to an end. They are going to have to fight for continuing political control. There are millions of Christians in the back of humanism's bus who are not impressed by the driver's skills anymore. They may not have all the answers yet, but they are getting restless. And then along comes Dr. Bonson with his road map. We paid our taxes, too, he argues, and we should prepare ourselves to challenge the humanist control over the driver's seat. This book is a preliminary defense of the continuing reliability of the road map which God's people were given at Sinai. More than this, it is a defense of the idea that there is only one road map which is accurate. There are many, many other maps that are being sold to Christians and humanists alike, but they all have one thing in common. They are inaccurate. It is astounding that a majority of Christians in our day have implicitly and even explicitly claimed that any roadmap is adequate, and that Christians can live tolerably well under the political and social administration of institutions governed by various humanist law orders. Anything will do, we are told, we can learn to live with any social order, except one. Only one is categorically rejected by an older generation of Christian social thinkers as invalid in New Testament times. God's law. Christian's Inferiority Complex Why have so many Christians, especially theologians and professors at Christian colleges, proclaimed such a monstrous social philosophy, a philosophy of anything is politically acceptable except the Old Testament? I believe the one reason above all is at the root of the problem. Christians have been afraid to exercise dominion. They have been bullied into submission by professional humanist guilt manipulators who have persuaded Christians that Christianity, when applied to politics, has led to tyranny and war. As an example, they cite the 800-year-old story of the medieval crusades, where a few thousand professional soldiers went off to fight the Muslims. And who is complaining loudly today about the evil crusades? Defenders of humanism whose various representatives have launched 20th century wars and revolutions, in which as many as... 150 million people died from 1901 until 1970. These same critics have complained repeatedly about the Roman Catholic Church's burning of the occult magician Bruno, or Calvin's approval of the burning of Unitarian Servetus, with the enthusiastic approval of the Catholics, who were also after him, and who tipped Calvin off when Servetus came into Geneva four centuries ago. Compare these two events with the atrocities of Stalin, who killed 20-30 to 30 million Russians in his purges in the 1930s, including a million Communist Party members, plus an additional 10 million who died unnatural deaths during the famines produced by his forced collectivization of agriculture. Then there is the continuing atrocity of the Soviet Union's concentration camp population, which has probably included about one-third of the Soviet's population over the years, with at least 1% of the entire population in the camps at any given time. This slaughter took place in the 1930s without any significant criticism in the prestiged liberal humanist press for the next 20 years. Malcolm Muggeridge, a reporter for the Manchester Guardian in this era, says in the first volume of his autobiography that Western reporters and liberals knew what Stalin was doing. They approved of his ruthlessness. Even in our day, some apologists still exist. Quote, Stalin, despite certain excesses, was a progressive force in his day, and we must understand that it is not easy to bring a backward society into technological maturity, blah, 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 end quote. Yet these same ideologues taunt Christians about the Salem witch trials in the 1690s, in which all of 20 people were executed, and which never happened again. In one year, Mao's policies killed 30 million Chinese. Spare Christians the guilt trips, please. Christians have until recently been humbled into submission by state-licensed, profit-seeking medical psychopaths who tell us that abortion is a morally valid way to control population growth and to solve marital and financial difficulties. A renewed interest in biblical law will unhumble Christians. Soon enough, it already has. People may ask, wouldn't biblical law lead to tyranny? I answer, why should it? God designed it. God mandated it. Was Israel a tyranny, or was Egypt the real tyranny in Babylon? Tyranny was what God visited upon his people when they turned their backs on biblical law. But to be practical about it, I cannot imagine a successful modern tyranny that is financed by less than 10% of national income. I can easily imagine many tyrannies that are coercively financed by five to seven times the tithe. So can you. In this bloody humanist century, This takes very little imagination. A history book is all it takes, or a subscription to the New York Times. Pipers and Tunes He who pays the piper calls the tune. The humanists have taxed our money away from us in order to hire pipers to play their tunes. But they weren't satisfied with the direct taxation. They debased the money and the pipers are in revolt. Now they are borrowing money with the full faith and credit of the federal government to keep the pipers playing. But when those who lend the money finally run out of patience and faith, the piper payers will be in big, big trouble. So will their pipers. When that day comes, Christians had better be ready with the biblical answer. Voluntary charity, the tithe to finance the church, and all levels of civil government combined, limited by constitutional law to under 10% of the people's income. The state is not God and is therefore not entitled to a tithe. Christians will pay the pipers voluntarily, and the pipers will play our tunes. Humanists can only cough up enough money to pay pipers when they have stolen the money with the ballot box by means of the politics of guilt and pity and the politics of envy. The gospel of Christ, when accompanied by faith in biblical law, destroys the psychological foundations of political guilt, pity, and envy. The humanist political end is in sight, and they are outraged, Psalm 2 tells us what God thinks of their outrage and how much good it does them. Conclusion I will put it bluntly. No theologian of repute, or even disrepute, has successfully challenged Dr. Bonson's defense of biblical law during the last eight years. I'll go farther. No theologian or Christian social thinker in our generation is capable of successfully challenging Dr. Bonson's general thesis because it's correct. I'll take it one step farther. We will not see any prominent Christian philosopher even attempt it, because enough of them know what happened to Meredith Klein. He was cut off at the knees in full view of anyone who bothered to read Dr. Bonson's response. Nobody is excited about the prospects of going up against Dr. Bonson in print. It leads to excessive humiliation. Yet, if someone from at least one modern theological camp does not respond, and responds soon, dispensationalists, neo-evangelical, Reformed, Roman Catholic, or Eastern Orthodox, then the intellectual battle is nearly won by the theonomist. It does no good for defenders of an older world-in-life view to pretend they can safely ignore a brilliant case presented for any new position, let alone the biblical position. If the establishment theologians remain silent for another eight years, the theonomists will have captured the minds of the next generation of Christian activists and social thinkers. Once the younger activists and intellectuals are won over, the fight is in principle over. To the victors will go the spoils, the teaching positions, the satellite TV, networks, and shelf space in the Christian bookstores, and maybe even secular bookstores, until they finally go bankrupt or go Christian. Now who will be the sacrificial lamb? Who wants to attempt to prove in print that this little book is the work of a heretic or an incompetent? Who will be the person to try to prove that this book's thesis cannot be sustained by an appeal to the New Testament? Who will then go on to refute theonomy and Christian ethics? A lot of very bright young men are waiting to hear from you, and then to hear from Dr. Bonson. Stay tuned for Bambi Meets Godzilla Part 2.